0: It's, it's being open yourself in that it's not, you've got to present yourself as being or taking on board different ideas. So it's, it's pitching it in a way that's not being dictatorial because you'll get half of the group will switch off in terms of, oh, here they go, they're telling us what to do, to do again. It's actually outlining why you're doing it and what the expected outcomes are. And you want feedback from them if they don't believe they're moving towards the expected outcome. And how can we shift or deviate and pivot on, on those aspects to make sure that we are moving towards the outcome that, that we're actually targeting. So it's being, it's open and honest about where you're going with things.
1: Welcome to the Prepare Like a Pro podcast. Every week, I host live chats via YouTube channel with leaders in the AFL and high-performance industries. Join me live every Sunday at 6pm where I debrief the recent chats and announce the upcoming guests. We drop an inspiring and educational episode every Monday. If you like the show, please follow us on your favorite podcast app. Hello and welcome back to the Prepare Like a Pro
2: live chat show. My name is Chat McLean. I'm your host and today my guest is Julian Jones. He's the Performance Service Manager at the Australian Institute of Sport and the President of the Australian Strength and Conditioning Association. Our key topic for today's chat will be people skills versus technical skills. So for all the strength and conditioning, high-performance staff tuning in, you'll definitely get some great takeaways as well as those p- managing a business potentially or um, just want to get better at your communication ability and, and technical aspects and get a better understanding of high-performance sport. Definitely stick around. If you've got any questions, you can use the comment section below. But welcome, Julian. Thanks thanks for jumping on, mate. Really looking forward to this project. Um, yeah, no, happy to be here. And for those that aren't aware of your work, I'm, I'm sure the SNCs and those in the industry definitely will be uh, as you've been in it for quite some time now. But for those that aren't in the industry, do you mind providing some background on how you got into the industry and, and what you've done
0: over your career? Yeah, sure. I started off my athletic career, actually, as an Olympic weightlifter, a bit of a family business in, in that situation. My father was the first actual coach appointed to the Australian Institute of Sport when we had a weightlifting section back in 1980. He was actually appointed at the end of 1980, the Institute opened January 1981, so I was weightlifting background obviously influenced from him in in what was going on there but in my advent into strength and conditioning really occurred into the 80s when obviously other sports in and around the AIS program we didn't have a strength and conditioning program then at the time but we had a, a physio clinical services situation with obviously with doctors physios massage therapists And the head physio, actually, Craig Purdom, was always getting these sort of little niggles and injuries from improper movement patterns, you know, exercise, execution. So, he asked me to actually help out if we can get some of these other athletes to be more proficient in what they did. So, that was my sort of start journey into strength and conditioning and, and then built from there. So moving into then taking up small contracts because there wasn't a whole lot of full-time professional roles back in the in the late 80s in terms of outside of football sort of codes so i used to take on some part-time roles with within basketball worked in rugby league for a short period of time in sydney worked out of the state sports center in homebush there under Bob Elfenston, who ended up being the director of sport for the Sydney Olympic Games into into that echelon and, and then built from there. So being the first scholarship coach of the AIS strength and conditioning program in ninety one and then becoming its senior coach in ninety seven, head coach in ninety nine and then held that position for twenty years, moving into head of performance support for 12, 18 months and then into my current position now as a performance services manager, which takes care of all of the services that the IS provides on our campus in Canberra. So not just strength and conditioning coaches, but biomechanists, dietitians, physiologists, skill acquisition Just to name a few in in that area and intertwine that then with the clinical services to make sure campus users, whether they're resident sports or camp-based sports, anywhere from a couple of days to a couple of months when they come on board, get the proper support to get their performance outcomes that they're after. So we take care of, in the last 12 months, 28 sports have used the site for over 171 camps with over 5,000 people coming on so athletes and coaches coming on site and then we've got eight resident programs across the sports of rowing basketball volleyball athletics gymnastics that's a full-time on site in canberra as well
2: and in that role that you're in how what a typical day look like in terms of people that are reporting to you and how, yeah how are you sort of managing all those different disciplines
0: so there's 22 People in my team, it sounds like quite a lot, but when you say that there's there's four strength conditioning coaches, there's three full-time dietitians, one full-time food services dietitian because we've got a dining hall on site and other sort of components with the actual food provision on a day-to-day basis in, in that area. So that that's quite interesting in just the difference between one and the other when you pick it apart. It's never quite as simple as what you might think from standing on the outside going, oh, they're they're the same, aren't they? And never make that mistake of telling them they're the same either. You learn that one pretty quickly. It's like trying to tell, tell a dietitian that they're a nutritionist, don't make that mistake either. <laughs> 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 from that perspective, you'll get a quick reply. But day to day it's really about obviously having, you know, they them working towards the performance solutions that we engage with the sports to try and work on. And invariably we gravitate to trying to do too many things rather than keep it simple, attack the one or two things. So we've actually got to keep working back over up. We've got all of these things. What are the top two priorities that we need to do with these sports in this particular week or over this period of time? And, and then it's really with that size of team, it's the people management, and that probably takes up uh, 60, 70 percent of my time. I work with a, an open door policy. And they walk through it on a regular basis, whether they're wanting to have a a discussion around what they're doing or they're wanting to seek approval for something or they're wanting to, uh, you know, float an idea of how we can improve certain areas or what they're doing with certain sports to kick it along from a a sequential perspective as well. So it's uh, it's never the same, other than obviously we work in a a government environment, so there's the usual meeting and bureaucracy that goes with that, finances, uh, people management, reporting, planning that that goes with that. But the day-to-day situation is probably at least half of my day is just talking with people and optimising what they're doing and enabling them to do what they do best. And along
2: your journey, who have been some strong influences or mentors, if you like, that have helped shape your philosophy?
0: Oh, look, I think it's more you have touch points on different people over the years. As I started off with saying, my father, obviously being a head coach in weightlifting, took the Australian weightlifting team to the, the 1980 Olympics and built from there, he went to the US and coached their women's team to their first gold medal in Sydney with Tara Ter- not in that environment. Obviously, huge influence in, in that situation, but more so then in the in the management and, you know, development of people sort of space. It is the the likes of the Craig Purdoms from the physio background, Phil Borjo, who was one of my direct line managers in going about how to do things. He's come from a volleyball background, so a team sport environment. Barry Barnes, who was the head coach of the Boomers, who I work with in terms of how, you manage a team environment, how to go about it, and as he'll tell you now, and how to not go about it. In that sort of way, and you learn those lessons along the way, and then how you get, you know, little influences from the people that you might be in part of that team, and as you're travelling, you get touch points on different internationals in how they would go about those sorts of things. So there's multiple people that I've always taken little bits from, learnt along the way, and, and, you know, adopted a style that I think, you know, is more... As I said, enabling people rather than directing people. And AIS obviously has a strong reputation and super
2: successful uh, in terms of producing elite athletes. I imagine there'd be some highlights. What, What
0: are some that sort of spring front of mind? Oh, yeah, over the years. So, I mean, I've primarily worked across the sports of rowing, basketball, water polo and swimming. While at the AIS from a direct delivery perspective with athletes through to then obviously managing other staff to do that. But the likes of, uh, you know, Michael Clem, Alex Popov in, in swimming, my wife, Patriot Thomas, is an obvious one. Obviously, you spend a lot of time in that environment, but you know, going through uh, a number of swimmers, rowers in Kate Slatter, Megan Still, who won the first women's gold for rowing in 96 and then through to, to Sydney as well. Then there's the, you know, the basketballers, Andrew Gaze, Andrew Bogart, Paddy Mills, Joe Ingalls, those guys, they've all come through the what was the AIS or Basketball Australia program and what needs to be done in with those guys that you, you know you've got blue chippers in terms of what you're dealing with, even from an early career sort of perspective. So to see them then progress through to what they finally achieve is that you know that you've had that little bit of impact in terms of directing and guiding them along the way, but there's but there's been plenty of them in terms of how you go about it and, and different ways of doing it. So, you know, over the years, you, you adapt your style and your delivery sort of modality, depending on the people that are in front of you. Um, one of the last sort of campaign direction athletes that, that I've worked with, Caroline Buchanan, in, in BMX. She's a very social media technology type of person, more so than any other athlete that I'd, I'd dealt with. So rather than, you know, explaining what you're doing from a, a technical perspective, she'd always be up there with, What do you think of this video? And, and what do you think of what this person's doing? And he'd be looking at that and going, Okay, I've got to pick that apart and then explain to her how. We can adapt it or not adapt it to her environment depending on her capabilities, capacities and, and movement patterns in that way, whereas before it would be more of a case of, well, I haven't got that much exposure to that, so we're trying to refine what our perspective of a movement pattern is and move that along the way within the sport coach around what they're Performance deficiencies are to enable that. Whether it be underpinning a skill that they they need with certain physical qualities, or it's actually a pure capacity output that that, that they need. So you're always changing it along the way, depending on on who you're dealing with. And last one before we get to the key topic: significant challenges you have faced. Obviously, high performance sport brings at times. Yeah, it does. And look, you know, I think the significant challenges there is we we work probably more short term the long term, which is always an issue in that uh, coaches are contracted in a relatively short term it's it's two or four year sort of cycles that they're that they're contracted for. so they tend to work on an here and now situation rather than okay where do we want to be in four to eight years time because they don't have that luxury. So that's probably the, the major challenge over the whole course of my career is to try and think long term, whilst also getting a short-term sort of an outcome because you're trying to pull the conversation back in you want your athlete to have that longevity. So you've got to do the stepping stones, the, the components that you need to build the foundation and then build upon so you can actually get some progressions later in their career. It's not to be in too much of a hurry as well in terms of you can see where you want to go, but you know what time span you're dealing with and some people can try and cram all this stuff into you know the two years of development of an athlete which you know they're never going to fully get there in two years they're going to need six years so it's articulating that and and actually having the athlete and the coach understand that that's the journey that they're on so to me that's probably the biggest challenges is actually you know that staying the course It's resilience is is a big factor in, in what we do and in lots of ways it gets usurped by a here and now requirement or whether it be political, whether it be, you know, a, a social sort of situation that comes in that derails it because we haven't had that resilience to stick with with where we wanted to go with people. Yeah. Yeah. It's such a, a
2: great point. And I imagine it's anyone working elite sport, it's a constant challenge in terms of putting all your energy into the now and, and maximising outcomes, like you mentioned, it's quite, can be quite objective. But then also thinking of the athlete from a sustainable point of view, especially the developing ones, but even for the older ones, taking can length in their career rather than cut it short? What are some signs that you've picked up that you can sort of see that maybe a coach is putting a bit, bit of a bigger emphasis or potentially the athlete might be paying the price on an overemphasis on the now?
0: They're normally in terms of trying to cut timescales down, As soon as you hear that, in you know, they're trying to expedite things, it raises a red flag because you, you, yes, you might be able to expedite it, but then you're going to have to address it again. So, um, why do that? Because if you actually take your time, then you won't have to readdress it because there won't be an issue or as much of an issue with the rehab type of a program or the, the capacities that you need because you'll consolidate what you've got. If you try and search, short circuit it then um that always raises a red flag with me in that either the coach hasn't taken on board what you're saying or doesn't fully understand it and and that's not to say that it's a negative on the coach they've got a a whole wide gambit of things that they need to be across and you're a, you're the specialist in your area so the onus actually falls on you to to upskill and educate the the coach in terms of what that does take and, and how long it will take to get those, those outcomes and what are the pitfalls if you do short circuit it mm-hmm. and are you prepared to take those and in some cases they might because the pressure is about that particular season or that point in the season. So it's it's just making them aware that that's the situation. But I always come back to, you know, you're looking after your athlete for the, for the longer term to maximize. It's not a, a use, a, an abuse type mentality. It's, it's the sustainable component and your blue chippers, you want them delivering for a longer period of time rather than high quality, short impact and then out. Know, a balance between physical and in terms of
2: injuries can be increased or is it more mental fatigue, people yeah, retiring it, early?
0: It's both, right. Uh, and that's the that's the pitfall that can be taken is that, you know, what is the the psychological aspect that they have to deal with? Mm. Uh, and it's all encompassing. So, you know, when we run a program at the AS Intensive Rehabilitation where we have a group of providers around the athlete that has a particular rehab issue, and the National Sporting Organization has put them to us to actually try and fix it. But it, it incorporates not just strength conditioning guys, but it's you know, dietitians, physios, psychologists in terms of well, how are we going to approach this and do we give the athletes short-term goals as well as what the long-term goal is as well so they can actually check themselves along the way because they can be very negative in the initial stages of of what's happening and we've all experienced that in you know the the initial injury of the athlete but if you surround them with a the appropriate makeup of the team that can address you know, the full gambit of what they need to do, then they, they'll actually buy into the process and actually check themselves once you've actually articulated it across the, all of those spectrum of elements.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks for touching on that and, and providing some some context into your role currently. It's a good segue probably for what we're about to, to dive into now, people's skills versus technical skills. For the developing strength and coaches or sports science students listening in, is there... Uh, prior- Do you think you should prioritise one over the other early on in your career? Is it a balancing act on chipping away to both? What's your thoughts on, I guess, for someone that wants to crack into elite sport, get their first
0: Yeah, track? it's a balancing act because there's a, there's a number of them that fall either side of the equation, right, in terms of you've got to be able to influence and form relationships. So that's about people management. But then you have to technically know what you're doing. So in the environments that we operate in, coaches actually have a a short tenure of you being able to demonstrate that you've got some expertise in an area because they quite quickly move on to someone else who does. So you've got to be able to quite quickly form a relationship, be able to influence in that space with the expertise that you have. So you've got to be, it's a concurrent environment where you need to be cognizant that you need to enhance all of those areas and and do it in a sequential type of a way in in that, you know, depending on the types of people that you're dealing with, that's the biggest probably faux pas of, of younger coaches coming into the system is they treat sport coaches and athletes in a particular way and that's where you need to check yourself in terms of what type of people am I dealing with and how do you go about it what's their learning styles we know some people are more visual more verbal more auditory so how do you actually go about that coaches are the same way and in and in lots of ways if they're the more amateur uh, i mean amateur in terms of not being paid so the more volunteer orientated coach that, that you have the less confident they are about what they're doing but they don't want to put that forward, right? They want to, I know I'm fully confident in what I'm doing here, when they're actually not because they've never worked with a whole lot of specialists around them for a long period of time either. So you've got to build that relationship so they become comfortable with you then using your expertise in an area that they have not a whole lot of knowledge about. But how do you present that in a way of not pulling the shutters up by the coach in terms of your... you make them feel threatened, so therefore back away from that and that's not what I'm going to do or that you, you come across as that you've, you're being a negative on them. Um, so you've got to understand that situation as well so it's it's reading people it's forming those relationships but then applying your uh, your expertise to actually get your quick wins and build on those so th- that's you know a couple of changes in you know the last 10 years is more a case of those people skills being probably more on the back burner to the technical technology skills as, as being put forward so when then you know, the crunch came, say, like with COVID and, you know, budgets get reduced, actual people get cut off because they don't have a relationship. So it's more, yes, you can technically do this and you've got the technology here, but now football departments are uh, have cut back because football caps have been cut, but the people who have good relationships are still there. What about
2: common challenges and solutions for, for coaches looking to develop those people skills? aspect early on in their career?
0: It is actually taking the time to get an understanding. Mm-hmm. I know there's, I and mean, I can I- expand on this further down the track, but uh, you know, we do a lot of profiling of athletes, whether that be benchmarking of physical capacities, you know, what's their psychological type of a profile, but what type of people are they? Spend the time to actually understand what that is. And I do a whole lot of work with my team now around Particular aspect in that, you know, are they people, people? Are they process orientated? Are they outcome orientated? Now, it's not to say one's more beneficial than the other, it's not. It's just a case of knowing who you're dealing with and then how to present certain scenarios in a way that they don't feel threatened by that particular style of person and understanding that your communication style will need to change because. You might be just after a solution, but to a process-orientated person, if you haven't gone from A to B to C to D, then there's all these alarm bells going off, so their stress levels go up. And if you haven't taken on board that you're ca- caring for the people, then the people people get worried that you're actually you know burning people out. So it's, it's having an understanding of what triggers them and, and how your communication style can change to accommodate for that being aware of what you're like as well because that's the other bit is you have to be self-reflective in terms of what am I like am I contributing to the issue here or I am am I being able to progress things and that profiling
2: process what are the most sort of effective ways that you've found is it questionnaires Is it interviews, one-on-one with the athletes? Like, what are some of your favourite
0: ones? It's a mixture of both, right? I mean, there's quite a number of profiling tools out there now. The Myers-Briggs, Strength Deployment Inventory, your Hogan, those. And look, there's an associated cost that comes with those, uh, which in most cases, coaches don't have access to that sort of funds to do it. But reading about those, you can actually sort of pick... And the styles of people by understanding those those profiling tools. I use a prof- I use the Strength Deployment Inventory with my team at the moment. We add as new staff members come along, we get their profiles added. So then we've got a team profile, and then people understand the team profile and who sits where. I have a predominance of people orientated staff and process orientated staff believe it or not and then the um, uh, sort of leaders within my team are actually moved towards the outcome orientated situation which i'm probably more lending into in that it's the- and they're color coded which my team actually like to take uh, the useful tool in terms of people people are blue process people are green outcome people are red so, I get a number of my staff now, it's like, oh, well, you're in a red zone today, eh? You know, after an outcome type situation, but it's quite a useful tool. That yeah. They get to understand that they can use it then to actually communicate in, in a certain way because if I'm red and I'm wanting a solution to a green person, that may be that they're highly stressed when they get to that red outcome. But to me, it's an, it's an everyday thing. But I need to be conscious of that too, that if I'm going out there going, I need to get this done. There I go, Oh Jesus Christ, he's really upset. He's pissed off with this. I'm going, I'm actually not. I just want to find the solution. But to them, they would be if I was act if they were saying the same sort of thing in the same sort of way. So it's yeah. it's understanding those components. But you can do it by actually just spending the time and, and getting an understanding once you know what those profiling tools are. So had a couple of new staff members last year, which the team actually, <laughs> it was quite funny, they they actually run a bit of a, a book on what they were going to turn out like before they actually did the profile in terms of, oh, we all reckon that person will be green. Okay, fine. Why they go, so because they're used to now working in that environment in understanding the types of people that are there and more often than not i mean we were probably on the money with with all of the new staff members last year before they even did the profile so you actually go you get attuned to the types of things and you pick up on the on the communication style the body language how they go about their business as to which sort of quadrant they, they land in which is which is good in itself because people keep talking about it then
2: And the process for athletes is very similar, like for that to the
0: staff? Very similar situation in terms of being able to, you know, quantify how they go about things. But the other thing also then with with athletes is trying to find their learning style. So, you know, is it that they've... 80% of athletes tend to be visual right so it's no point standing by the side of them talking to them till you're black and blue in the face and they're not getting it whereas you can actually use you know video feedback tools in what you're looking for critique it and then suddenly it clicks quite quickly from that perspective but there are a number of them that are if you need to give them something written down oh I get it now because that's the way they process. But you can quite quickly work that out if you you take the time and actually take those cues and the feedback that comes your way from the way that they interact with you. It's just spending the time and actually noting that even at the end of each session of going, you know what, this particular athlete didn't do that well today now why didn't they do that well because i actually didn't give them as much feedback as i thought i was giving them when i actually broke it down and reflected on, on what we did in that session because that you can actually lose them when the more numbers you have right i mean we, we've all been there where you go and yell i've suddenly got a session with 20 odd athletes in at the one time and i can't get to those people as often as i would do if i'm only dealing with a group of three to five and you mentioned early on in
2: your career uh, with your weightlifting background, how that opened up some opportunities with, with Craig Purdom in, in terms of movement competency. Um, so, technical skills that obviously they have value in terms of yeah, opening doors. What would you say, is sort of the most, I guess, top three for for technical skills for the current SNC sort of performance coach to yeah. develop? It? <laughs>
0: It it's actually backing what you're looking at. I think that's something that's become less and less of a trait of late. Is you want to refer to, oh, we measured this and we got this number. No, what are you looking at here? I had some interns last year where we've got them on the force decks and we're doing you know a force profile of the athlete and they're generating and I'm making a number up here, but you know, three thousand newtons. A force output and it's like, oh, well, we need to now design a, a a six-week program to actually get that up to the 4,000 Newtons that we're after. And when you actually look at how they move to do the to do the movement, you went, they don't need six weeks, you can fix it in 10 minutes mm-hmm. because they haven't got this in the right position and that in the right position, but they don't know because they don't know what it feels like. So, look at the athlete. Do they move in the correct framework? And it's not to be absolutes either and i think we get caught up in this with from an academic paper perspective is that we always get caught up in what angle is this and what trajectory is that but there's a there's a range right because we're all the athletes are all different they're different limb lengths different leg lengths that type of situation and how they apply it and there's a an element of self-discovery but does it fit within the correct framework that you're after this concept in your head of, of what you're looking at when they're actually performing the activity that they're doing is it efficient for them have you challenged them in terms of does it feel right for them rather than keeping going back and saying well the gps has given us this much data or the force plate output has given us this number we need to keep cognizant of the fact that there are differences and there's a range that people will move in it's not wrong it's what's peculiar to them and what's efficient for them. And you've got to work with that.
2: And moving over of the communication side, you mentioned learning styles and getting an understanding of profiling the, the staff you're working with and understanding your athletes. I imagine that feeds into communication, mm-hmm. but yeah, some tips or tricks for improving communication with athletes, perhaps you're, you're briefing a, a large group before they're about to start a session, you know, how to improve engagement and, and retention yes. of information.
0: It's, it's being open yourself in that it's not, you've got to present yourself as being or taking on board different ideas. So it's, it's pitching it in a way that's not being dictatorial because you'll get half of the group will switch off in terms of, oh, here they go, they're telling us what to do, to do again. But it's actually outlining why you're doing it and what the expected outcomes are and you want feedback from them if they don't believe they're moving towards the expected outcome and how can we shift or deviate and pivot on on those aspects to make sure that we are moving towards the outcome that, that we're actually targeting. So it's being, it's open and honest about where you're going with things as well as then delivering in a style that is engaging rather than this is it, this is what we're doing, off you go type of situation. You know, quite happy to discuss how we're going to go about this. I always put that as a caveat these days is, and I think as uh, as an early practitioner, we always tended to go, right, This we've got it all sorted. This is where we're going to go. This is how we're going to do it. Right, let's, let's get into it and, and away you go. But it's more a case of saying, look, this is where we want to get to. This is how we believe is the best way of doing it. Open to any other suggestions from you coming now, but we'll give this a go first and we'll pivot if we need to pivot. So it's just... Saying the same thing in in many ways, but pitching it just slightly differently so it incorporates them buying into it. I always feel that you get a much better outcome, and then you also can tell which style of people you're dealing with then as well, because yeah. those they'll that they will take the opportunity to ask you there, and then in front of the group, you'll get others that then sidle up to you a couple of minutes later so they can do it one on one, or they'll ask you to actually show you something. Rather than actually talk to them about it, so you can get an idea of how they go about their business as well. Yeah, it sounds like you almost bring them along for the journey. And
2: in terms of visualization, is that, you know, demoing movements? What are some other sort of visual
0: tools that you can do to, yeah, help with that process? It's u- using the, uh, the competition context as well in terms of people who do it well. So have a competition, you know, video clip of this is. The, the high performer doing it this is what we want to get to or this is how we want it to be done as effectively they have certain ranges that they they utilize this is where you're at uh, and this would be what we would perceive as the gap so what are the stepping stones we're going to take to get there because it's not the same for everyone so it's outlining that so you get them to buy into that process as well if you outline it completely and they've got no buy into it you're not going to get the the progression that you're after anyway. So it's making sure that they understand that you've got their best interests at heart, that it's you're buying into their development and their performance progressions. And it's not just you prescribing something because you want it to reflect back on that, yeah, I'm the best strength and conditioning coach or, you know, the the team leader that that can be in the, in this particular area. The athletes are all, all around buying of what what they're doing, and as support staff, that's pretty much what our jobs are. The, the best thing that we can get it out of it at the end of the day is that they turn around and thank you for it. We're not going to get media exposure out of it, you know, profiles in in that sort of situation. But y- you know, when you do a good job, is that they appreciate it and they'll thank you for it and they'll progress on their way.
2: Yeah, and you mentioned working with interns. Is there has there been a Significant gap in either people skills or technical skills that you've seen over the last sort of five years. So for the modern intern student coming through,
0: look, I think it depends on the type of people that you actually bring on board. I always tend to look at it is that you recruit hard, manage easy it is it is a mantra that I definitely buy into. Is that you spend the time in again understanding the person you want to bring on board as an intern or a staff member or in in any sort of element that adds impact into into your performance team and can they operate as effectively as they need to within the environment that you've got, you've got to check that. You might have the world's best biomechanist, but they might have no communication skills, right? So are you getting the best out of them? And you've got to check that. But you've also got to say, can I enable that? Um so just because it doesn't present itself there and then when you're actually look at who you're going to recruit in that situation is what's the propensity? So it's, it's actually checking and challenging, questioning-wise as to why they present that way. What motivates them? What drives them? Would they be prepared to actually spend the time developing in that space? It's always look at things in terms of there's a number of underdeveloped skills that people have. How do you then enhance those skills? But there are also they might not have any of the skills. Now, I always hate it when people say, oh, we work on strengths and weaknesses. If if you don't have it and you're a mature adult, more often than not, you're not going to get it. It's whether it's underdeveloped, so you can then develop it that way. And that's where you need to actually recruit and yeah, have people in your team that complement each other because you're not going to have the full gambit with the one person. So you want to be able to say, well, look, they've got an underdeveloped skill here that will increase as we provide the opportunities to do that, but they don't have this skill. So I need someone else with that skill so they can complement each other and then they can communicate in the right way to optimise the whole spectrum that you're after.
2: Yeah. And for the managers listening in or those in leadership positions as well, I guess everyone to a certain degree is a leader, but yeah, those looking after and supervising and sort of overseeing programmes, what are sort of your do's and don'ts when it comes to management of staff?
0: It's pretty much asking them how they're going to go about things rather than telling them how to go about things. You want, you want to utilise their expertise. You want them to buy in and own um, where they're going with things. So you're really the, the navigator there. It's more around saying, you know, okay, so how are you going to fix that? How, what are you going to put in place to actually move that along? What's your thoughts here? to maximize this outcome and get them to talk about it and sort of you know just check and challenge in an open and honest way and provide a psychologically safe environment for that to happen. I don't think we spend enough time working on you know having trust and honesty and in an environment and in high performance sport that is difficult because everyone moves around in a relatively short period of time, really. Um, They don't, I'm probably a unique individual in that I've been in the one organization for quite a long time, but I'm, I'm a rarity in that situation. So people are mindful that other people are after different jobs. So in creating that psychological safety, they're not probably not as open as they they could be. But if you do that from day one, and that's the way that your team operates, I think you get a whole lot more buy-in and you, you get ownership of the activities that you want to get ownership of. I always hate it when people come to really just ask you for approval for something. You know, is it okay if I do this? Well, what do you think? Oh, I think it's okay. Well, then it's okay, isn't it? You don't need to come and ask me for approval in that rent. You're doing it because it's going to add to the progressions that we're after. So if you're coming to ask for approval, in most cases, you're actually trying to say, well, I'm not that confident in this area. Well, how do I build the confidence? Because I want you to come in and go, look, we've got this issue. I reckon we do this, 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 and this. Okay, well, have you thought about this as well? Oh, yeah, okay, we can incorporate that too. Great, off you go. Let's get it done. And you know what? If If we get it wrong... We get it wrong but we'll pivot and we'll learn off it there's no issue in actually that you're going to make a mistake and that is going to happen and you're going to learn more from the mistake than you do from the positive thing that you do you make the biggest correction from the mistake that you make but you've got to allow for an environment that if you've assessed everything and you've made you know the best informed evidence-based decision in where you want to go then give it a go there's no issue for that. You know, a friend of mine used to work for Nike Works for Adidas now, but when he started at Nike, his boss then that in the Nike lab actually told him, we expect you to fail 75% of the time. Suddenly all this pressure came off him in terms of going, all right, well, I can come up with a couple of different shoe designs then each year, which are no problem, rather than saying every one of these things that I do has to work. So it's a yeah, second yeah. environment where you go, failure is normal. And you will get that, but you've got to learn from it and you've got to correct from it and discuss it in terms of how you're going to go about it. Because it's not a definitive in terms of how you would react and adapt to the stimulus that you want to put in a program or psychologically how you address a certain area. So it's not straight chronological situation with athletes as they develop. It's it's around how they respond to what you've programmed as a stimulus for them. Have you learned from that? Are we going in the right direction? And if it's not quite there, well, guess what? We've got some progression. Didn't go as well as we thought it would, but you know what? If we actually change it, I think we'll get a, a an even bigger progression. Okay, well, let's change it then. Makes a lot of sense, and the way
2: you yeah provide clarity on, on that management piece, you can tell you've been doing it for quite some time. So, yeah, thank you for, for sharing that and, and also for yeah, providing some actionable things that people can work on for coaches, particularly around the people skills as well as the the technical skills. Moving over to the personal side and start to wrap up the show, mate. Are there pet peeves that you have
0: from an industry point of view? Anything that makes you angry? I I tend not to dwell on those sorts of things. I, I'm pretty much an an early adopter. I'm quite happy in a change sort of environment. I'm I assess quite quickly as to whether I'm on board or I'm not. So probably one of my I've got a couple of staff members over the years that you go, if you can't bring them along on the change management journey quick enough, they become an issue because they sit in a, what we call a prisoner (laughs) environment in that they feel that they they can't go anywhere else, but they're just negative. Um, So that's probably one of my pet peeves is that you've got to have and this comes back to the recruitment situation, right? You've got to have people that you've got to let them go through the change management process and in understanding where they're at, but it's more a case of how do you enable that to happen and, and move them along. And you want people who do sit in that sort of prisoner mode to actually just make the decision because you don't want them to sit and denigrate the rest of the team. You want to say, well, then obviously this environment's not for you and they make that decision and then they go and get another job somewhere else in an environment that they're, they're happier with. That's probably one of my major peeves is when people sit there and just denigrate an, an environment because that they're not happy with how it's gone. Well, it's in your control to change that, so take control of it. Yeah, on that
2: actually, it brings brings to mind what you mentioned before, recruit hard so you can manage easy. Uh, what, yeah.
0: What would a typical recruitment process look like for a full-time <laughs> position? Definitely not just the uh, the 12-question type situation. We always do a practical element. We throw curveballs into the practical element. I might send a, a programming task of which then they've got to deliver it but then I'll rip half of it apart just just to see how they react <clears throat> in terms of, okay, now you've got to progress this aspect and regress this other aspect because there's an injury concern or they've just turned up the coaches has doubled the volume that they did in the session before they got to you what do you do that type of situation so and you see how they think on their feet how they act with you as well do they just stay the course and don't change anything do they ask you to well you know is it okay if I do this well where's the courage of your own conviction here in, in what you want to get done so it's it's more around those sort of elements that's yeah, in your recruitment situation as you're trying to tease out yes they'll you'll give them some tasks to to test their technical expertise. I'm a little bit in the luxury of of where we sit in that we don't recruit beginners very often unless it's actually a designated development intern type of approach. So we actually have the luxury and, and strength in conditioning. some an interesting environment as Brendan Appleby, who's the Hockey Roos, in hockey with, with the men's program always tells me there's only two degrees of separation from someone knowing someone in strength and conditioning in this country. So it's an, e- it's an easy phone call to actually go, what does this person operate like before they actually get to you? And don't think that that doesn't happen because it does quite a lot. They might not be your referee. They might not be someone that you've put forward to push your barrow because we actually want to do that scoping in terms of you know recruiting hard to make sure that we've covered all the bases in that situation. Like internationals that apply, would you expect them to come
2: face-to-face for those practi- that practical component?
0: Yeah, we do. Obviously, with the advent of a lot more virtual sort of situations available to them, we can also do a live session. And in again, invariably, we know someone who knows someone in that environment, so we can actually yeah. make sure that we can get a proper understanding of how they go about their business as well as in the background check on on those particular people in in what we might do. What we tend to find though is we don't recruit too many internationals. It's more about returning Australians, <laughs> believe it or not. Yeah. They've gone and you know, seen what their fortunes might be in, in other countries and then they want to come back in. So you actually can follow them up following their pathway and picking out the people that you you trust to give you the right feedback. Yep. Yep. And uh, yeah. back
2: to the personal side your favourite way to spend your day off?
0: Not being structured and organised because that's what my week normally is. We're actually moving from one thing to the other thing you know, I've got a lot of balls in the air normally during the week whether it be m- my day job all my other activities that we also pack in and around those sorts of things as well so that makes for a fairly structured week and more often than not you know into the weekend as well so when you get the full day off it's more a case of might have to get a few things done but we'll do it at the pace that we want to and we'll see what the day brings in most cases and normally I'm I'm pretty much take a back seat, and the rest of my family will drive what I do on a day off. So I'll just go with the flow so I can actually switch off a little bit.
2: Yeah, I love that. And last one, but early on in 2023, or nearly middle, but yeah, in April 2023, we're recording. What's on the horizon for you, Julian, for 2023? What are you excited about?
0: Well, this year we've had a, a restructure at the Sports Commission. We were positioned as two sort of separate organisations prior to the restructure in January now we're back as one organization so it's navigating the interdependencies that we need to actually have work effectively and efficiently to optimize athletes and coaches getting the outcomes that they need to whether it's from external provision of development courses you know Activities and funding from uh, and benchmarking sort of components that go with that to what we do on site from you know, the point that they want to come on site, bookings, is the residence working well, all those sorts of things. They sit across different divisions, different teams. So it's making sure that those interactions are, are working as, as well as it can because we've got a short Olympic cycle this cycle with Paris only being three years from when Tokyo was run. So with Paris next year, we're coming up to only 12 months to go. With it being April now, it starts in July next year. So we're into qualification of sports for the Olympics So it's maximising that at the back end of this year and making sure that they get that done early so then they have the the capability of that preparation period next year because those that have to chase qualification all the way down to the wire and it being a month or two out from the Olympics don't necessarily get the best outcomes because they don't get to be able to periodise in the way that they need to to actually optimise that performance outcome. So we try and do it as early as possible. Makes sense. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your
2: time and, and providing yeah some information around this fascinating topic, as I mentioned off here. We haven't discussed this in great detail with the guests before, certainly the, the people and then the mix with the technical side. So I took a lot from it and, I, and I'm sure all the coaches and listeners did as well. For those that have any follow-up questions or perhaps want to follow your work, join is there a, a place to get in contact or a place to follow you on the socials?
0: I've got a not too much in the socials I'm on in and I'm on Twitter in the handles now I can't actually tell you straight off the top of my head what my handles are on those ones but you can find me on those um, why i them in the show yeah in terms of then you know getting to me on those sorts of things that's fine
2: fantastic awesome well yeah thank you again and on that topic is there anything that you wanted to touch on that perhaps we missed uh,
0: no, I, I think we've we've touched on the main things around it. It is knowing who you're dealing with, the types of people, investing the time, enabling them, uh, is the key things, and having them own the outcome gives you a better outcome. Well said. Nice way to wrap it up. And for
2: those that have tuned in, I can see a few tuned in halfway through. Make sure to listen to the very start. We'll release this on our podcast next Wednesday. And our next live chat show will be with Alex Euribik, the psychologist. That will be next Thursday, the 20th of April at 1 o'clock Australian Standard Time. So I'll see you guys then.
1: If you enjoyed this episode and want even more, our academy is for you. The Prepare Like a Pro Academy is a platform that hosts exclusive features and bonus content such a Q&A segment, aimed at getting to know the guests on a more personal level. Here's an example with Emily Meehan, head sports dietitian of the Football Club. What are things that, that fire you up?
3: Oh, this one is always, uh, so I suppose it is, um, it'll be topical for most people, I think, but staying in your lane. And I yep. often find that with nutrition, everyone eats, so everyone has an opinion. And I think that's what really gets me, fired up um, because so many people try and provide nutrition advice based on their end of one experience when they did intermittent fasting or keto or whatever it might be. And then
2: game changes,
3: changes, whatever that might be. And look, it probably keeps me in a job, but that it does drive me insane because sometimes the information can be so detrimental um, and opposite to what I've been working with my athlete. Or athletes, and you know, and because they hear it on someone's socials or through a documentary, it unravels everything that I've been working with an athlete
1: for. Yeah, yeah. Another feature of our academy is the opportunity each week to join myself as co-host on the Prepare Like a Pro live chat show. Here's an example with Academy member Rama Davies, the strength additional conditioning coach at the Box Hill Hawks.
2: Welcome, Rama, to the chat.
1: Uh, Rama has also worked at, at Box Hill, or currently he's working at
2: Box Hill Hawks with us. Awesome. So he's another Box Hill man uh, in the strength and conditioning department. So I'll hand it over to you, Rama, to, to ask your question, mate. Thanks for joining us.
4: Excellent. Thanks, Jack. And yeah, thanks, um, thanks, Sam, for the chat. It was. Uh, I found it to be really insightful. Plenty of gems in there, um, and I enjoyed it a lot. <laughs> Um, May, my my question to you was you spoke quite a bit about um, perspective during that chat Um, and I was wondering what are some of the things that you either know or um, do physically that um, you wish you either knew or did uh, back at the beginning of your career? Uh, What are some of those things? Mm, Yeah, good question yeah so i suppose with perspective on life um that sort of point um it yeah certainly yeah has been massive for me now and and didn't probably have that as much um when i was younger um i suppose one thing i might mention is is gratitude i spend a lot of my time um doing a lot of gratitude exercises listening to podcasts